0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. We hear the words from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him, and the criminals there, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. They divided his garments by casting lots. The people stood by and watched. The rollers, meanwhile, sneered at him and said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the chosen one, the Messiah of God. Even the soldiers jeered at him. As they approached to offer him wine, they called out, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself the title of this conference is save yourself the religious leaders what they saw was only death the roman soldiers all they could see is death the bystanders all they could see is death. The criminal, all he could see is death. Most of the disciples, in their fear, all they could see is death. And so no wonder people are shouting out, save yourself. Save yourself from all of that. Get off that cross. Save yourself from the pain and suffering And yet, just hours before that, at the Last Supper, Jesus and the apostles were chanting Psalm 136. For his mercy endures forever. So in that same faith, would we not understand that God's mercy is enduring in that moment of death? And so Jesus... Would then teach us that suffering, suffering on the cross, and fidelity to the Father's will is what is revealing His mercy. Save yourself from that. They would have no idea what they might be saying is save yourself from God's mercy, because that's the way in which the Father was choosing to reveal His mercy. And so how did Jesus prepare himself for the cross? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So save yourself from that moment by which everything leading up to that moment was all drenched in God's mercy. So from the beginning, when John the Baptist announced and heralded, look, behold, there's the Lamb of God. That announcement brought Jesus to a moment in his beginning of public ministry to establish the way in which you and I are supposed to behold him. So when John says, behold the Lamb of God, how do you do that? And so John the Baptist, led by the Spirit, is creating this moment by which we are to behold him. And so it's time for Jesus' baptism. To be saved, the Hebrews had to trust prefigured in their escape and their new freedom from Egypt that in order to be saved, they would have to trust that going through a sea and coming out of that sea would be the way in which they would be saved. They had to trust that that was the way that God was choosing. Jesus is now showing us through the life of the church prefigured in the actions of John the Baptist. This is how you will be saved. And so even in that moment as John is baptizing Jesus maybe in the hearts and minds of people watching all of this save yourself. You don't need to go through this. But we know that only God can save us. John's behavior did not conform to how both the rigidity of the religious leaders and the secular view of King Herod, of how they understood what reality was supposed to be about. Save yourself from this nonsense. It looks strange. He's acting strange. This announcement that he's the Lamb of God Save yourself from all of that. How does then Jesus, as he comes out of those waters of baptism, teaches us in this new moment that he's created for us, what does he do? He's going to teach us, as newly baptized, how to confront evil. Now, why would that be... (laughs) one of the earliest experiences of the newly baptized. Jesus is going to teach us if you want to be saved only I can do it and a part of that salvation is the way in which you with me standing there are going to confront the temptations. And so Jesus teaches us very vividly as the scriptures would reveal what the devil proposes in this newly baptized Jesus are earthly factors to respond to the hungers that Jesus experiences in his human nature. He's in his late 20s, he's in his early 30s. Jesus, out of a spiritual discipline of fasting and out of the limitation that's a part of the Father's will at this moment in his life, is now given these earthly factors to respond to his hungers and his thirsts. Even the power to see all the kingdoms of the world with a seductive voice, Jesus, save yourself from all of this stuff that you're going through. The renouncement of those earthly factors, factors by which Jesus would then respond, man cannot live by bread alone. When we renounce the earthly ways that we think can satisfy a hungry heart, we're still going to be hungry. We're still going to be thirsty. And Jesus is teaching us in that hunger and thirst, as He's directly confronted with His own temptations, how to be saved. Save yourself the human reaction that does not want suffering the human reaction that does not want a personal discipline that in any way that can hurt us and so as we begin this year everyone in this chapel wants to be saved who are those voices or what are those voices that you've been hearing this past summer this past year that might be saying save yourself From that seminary. Save yourself from celibacy. Save yourself from this rigid 2000 year tradition that says this is the truth, which has to exclude other people's opinions. Save yourself from all of that. You're reasonable, you've got your own mind, make up your own decisions. Save yourself from rigid obedience. And so, in those voices that are telling you to save yourself from all of this, what are the temptations that you experience? Because as Jesus renounces those voices, man cannot live by bread alone. I cannot live by what you're telling me. But I still thirst, as he would say from the cross. He is still hungering in that desert as he's renouncing those temptations. And so each seminarian, every priest, every Christian, as we are confronted with temptations right now, as you discuss these things in spiritual direction, as you confess them in the sacrament, as you sort through this in the external form with your advisor, as you get some counseling to help sort out the way in which your body and mind is reacting to these things, how will you master those temptations? How will you order them? How will you conquer them? How will you confess them? How will you purify them? That initial habit is an internal, personal, spiritual exercise. And Jesus is with you. Our baptism forever conforms us to him and he to us. That is his priesthood. We are with him. Only he can save us. But we are being asked in that salvation to know and to understand in self-mastery, this is my temptation. If we ignore it, if we try to repress it, push it away, you will never master it. This personal spiritual exercise that begins is also ecclesial it is being played out in the context of the body of Christ. Discipleship is never, ever personal. And so, in this community, in ways that are quiet, personal in your prayer, you're nevertheless being asked to confront these temptations as a man in this community. There may be new temptations that you've never experienced before, new seminarians. And so while you have mastered to this point all of those things. Don't be so prideful. Don't be so naive to not think there are new ones. So what are the voices maybe just these last 10, 12 days? Be ready for those voices that will be speaking to you throughout this semester. They may be internal voices. That's the whisper of the devil. They may come to you from family and friends. Save yourself is going to be echoed throughout this semester. The temptation might be, yeah, I'm going to save myself tonight with a bucket of wings and a pitcher of beer and sloth. I'm going to save myself with good old porn. I'm going to save myself with cheap gossip. I'm going to save myself by being uncharitable to a brother seminarian. I'm going to save myself from being in an accepting mediocrity in not fulfilling my academic requirements because I'm special. I'm a special person. I deserve to satisfy my hunger and my thirst. Save yourself. You can't. So in a very public scenario, we hear this. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been ill for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am on my way, someone else gets down there before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, stand up, take your mat, and walk. Immediately, the man became well, took up his mat, and walked. Well, guess what, man? You have no more excuses. Pick up the mat and walk. Maybe the temptation is even to leave the mat behind. It stinks. I've been sitting on that thing for 38 years. No, take it with you. As we talk so often, those wounds of Jesus weren't left behind. That stinking cross was not left behind. Not in any way to show us what we did to him, but for him and his sacred heart to show us, this is how much I love you. Don't ever forget it. Take that mat with you. Don't ever forget that from here on, you have no more excuses. Walk. Walk. Move forward. And that was done in public. And so in this house, there may be times in which all the excuses in the world might be in your heart and mind, and the church, through a professor, through a rector, through a fellow seminarian, that says, stand up and walk. Go. Move forward. We don't have time for this. We stand up as men of God and as sons of the church. And when we stand up with that stinking mat and all those excuses that were in that mat, there is a growing that occurs that might even be difficult within the community where everybody sees this. But because this is a community rooted in charity, our response to conversion, to growth, is going to be one of support. This past summer, Pope Francis gave a very interesting reflection to a group of priests where he refers to this tension of embarrassed dignity. Embarrassed dignity. A tension that might not always be separated. And he used the example of the prodigal son who's coming back. He's lost everything. I've got nothing left except, I hope, the love of my father. And we know the story a ring's put on his hand, a cloak is put over him, he's got brand new sandals, and there are probably hundreds of people waiting. He was probably embarrassed. Dad, you've got the whole town here? This is embarrassing. And there's not even get a shower first. You're gonna walk right into that middle of that hall with dignity. You've got my ring on. You're wearing my cloak. That's my sandals I gave to you. That's how much I love you. And I want you to walk in there with that dignity. And he had to be embarrassed. Embarrassed dignity. The embarrassment isn't for shame. It's for the recognition that in our humanity, if we don't allow ourselves to be broken down, even within this community. Whereas a group of men, we're competitive. We want to succeed. Those are good virtues. But being embarrassed from time to time, not for the sake of embarrassment, allows the promotion of good dignity. Don't we allow this to be seen, our Lord does, with our good friend, St. Peter. This was done to him. Simon, Peter. As Simon, he comes from a fishing net that stinks probably. His brother drags him off. He's not prepared. He's Simon. Smelling fish, swamp water. There he's before Jesus. Who now is conferring a dignity. Now you are rock. You are Peter. But then Simon, in the temptation, begins to cooperate with evil spirit. Get behind me, Satan. Simon wants to deny Jesus. Peter confesses his love for the Lord. Three times, the flock is entrusted to Peter. Simon Peter, that tension, you, the seminarian, you as a man, ordinary, sinful, not worthy, but the Lord is calling you as seminarian, future priest, to confer the dignity of a high priesthood that tension plays itself out certainly after priesthood after ordination but allowing that embarrassed dignity to play itself out in a community where docility and humility great virtues that always keep us anchored but again save yourself just be Simon be the old man don't allow yourself into this new dignity. Jesus, of course, teaches us where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. And Jesus' treasure is prayer with the Father and proclaiming the kingdom to his people. There's no tension, but it's not either or. Prayer, salvation, prayer in the people. That's where Jesus' treasure is at. And so the treasure of this community is found in our Lord. That is where our treasure, our investment, our wealth of all the gifts is invested in him for the sake right now of this community. You're thinking about home. You're thinking of your bishop, your superior, your home parish, your community. Our mind, our prayers is always there. But right now, our treasure in the Lord is meant to then be shared in this community, where your treasure is, and your treasure is right here. And what's that going to look like throughout this year? The heart of Jesus reveals the Good Shepherd. That's where his heart is at with his people. Christ knows and loves his sheep. Seminarians know and love the church. And you're now grappling and discerning if she's going to be your bride. In your experience of Holy Mother the Church, as you're wooing, as she's wooing you, and you're wooing to her, the possibility of spousal love. That's happening here. Where is your treasure? If the treasure is being buried and invested outside of this experience of Notre Dame Seminary, that's revelatory to where maybe you ought to be, rather within the community. Our Lord teaches us with that heart of the shepherd where the investment of his treasure is in the Father's will and amongst the sheep, as we have talked so often here about where that shepherd is to be. The shepherd is in the middle of the community. Seminarians are fully immersed in the community. They know their brothers so well. They know how to pray for them. They know their anxieties. They know their cares. They know each other's joys. They know each other's suffering that's a sign of a good sheep who's going to be a great shepherd. If he doesn't practice that in this community after four to six years, it isn't magic, then he really never was a part of this flock. He was a guest. He had a dormitory room. A good shepherd is because he's a good sheep. He knows his brothers that well. He's also a sheep that doesn't wanna let any of the other sheep left behind. In this community, who gets left behind socially? Who gets left behind academically? Who gets left behind in poor human formation? Who's getting left behind because they lack pastoral skills? Who's being left behind because we never see him here for, for a holy hour in the morning, ever? Who's being left behind as the shepherd of this flock I'm trying to keep my eyes open so that none of you get left behind. But you're preparing to possibly be a shepherd, a spouse of the church. So you too, practicing this virtue now after four to six years, you don't want to see brothers being left behind. What are you going to do about it? A good shepherd's right in front of the flock. And you want to stand in front of this community, sometimes embarrassed and sometimes with dignity. So you're going to push yourself to be in front of whatever flock that's going to look like that day, from this committee, to this activity, to this ministry, to the way I can serve this community, and sometimes I'm going to make mistakes, sometimes I'm going to fail, sometimes I'm going to misjudge, and I'll be embarrassed. But that's all right. A sheep that learns how to get to the front of the flock after four to six years will one day know how to stand in front of it and guide and lead people to Jesus. So I would hope that as voices are saying, no, keep your head low. Don't let them see you. Navigate through the duck. I'm going to get through this whole system. They'll never know what I really think. I'm going to just step here, step over there, and, and dance my way up to ordination. That's the dance I'm going to dance with. You will not be a good shepherd. But but, but people are saying, save yourself From all of that process you might hear that in your own heart and from the lips of of other people our holy father Pope Francis also this past summer reflected on a shepherd that never wears gloves he told the priest this past summer take your gloves off get dirty now tomorrow we have to wear gloves (laughs) but in this community here yeah, we're gonna take, take the gloves off. See, when Jesus uses those most sacred words, this is my body, this is my hands, these are my lips, this is my voice, given up for you. Our bodies are being consecrated, our hands are being prepared for, to be anointed. So we don't want to have any obstacle, anything that can interfere so that when the priest who's conjoined and configured, not just to Jesus' words, but to Jesus himself, that you'll be able to say with your vestment on, this is my body. It's gotten dirty for you. It's been studied for you. It's been fashioned for you. It's been beaten sometimes for you. It's been glorified for you. This is my body, which I am giving up for you. And that's the proud moment of the bishop on the day of ordination who wants to say that. I want to give you this shepherd. And so in these years of discernment and formation, we take the gloves off. To get dirty and to get strengthened. In conclusion... The church speaks to us from our bishops in the PPF. The goal in this formation is the development not just of a well-rounded person, a prayerful person, or an experienced pastoral practitioner, but rather one who understands his spiritual development within the context of his call to service in the church, his human development within the greater context of his call to advance the mission of the church, his intellectual development as an appreciation of the church's teaching and tradition, and his pastoral formation as participation in the active ministry of the church. That's all summarized in one word, integration. And so, while we have uh, spoken often about the four pillars of formation, I've reminded you that that is an inaccurate translation. In the Latin, it's the four dimensions of formation. If we look at pillar, 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 as the bishops will say, we can be successful in each of these pillars, but they're not relating to one another. It's the four dimensions of priestly formation. And so in those dimensions, there is a symphonic, organic relationship in ways where they're not always operating equally. So yes, from time to time, one might say, I don't have enough time in my spiritual life. Then there's something wrong in your spiritual life. There's nothing wrong with the aurarium or the role of life. Because we're operating out of a spirituality by which our study by which our human formation, by which our pastoral activity is flowing from. But our time is organized in a way where there will be moments during the academic year where intellectual formation and other dimensions are operating at a higher end, and other things may be operating at a lower end where over Christmas in the summer. So looking at our formation in its totality, not just on Tuesday afternoons, not just during midterms, not just during study time, where we're entrenched in a moment where all four pillars might not be exactly operating at the same level. So your discernment is to look at the whole capacity of your formation, then to be able to have self-mastery over it so that the integration that our bishops are anticipating in all of us can be achieved in a realistic manner. But again, when those moments not where we think they should be save yourself and we may be tempted to start pushing back cynicism and pessimism reveals itself most strongly when we're not attuned to the voice of Jesus only he can save us if we try to have personal direction over saving ourselves we will be disappointed we will fail we will fall We will struggle because we think we can do this without Him. So we don't want to ever buy into those words save yourself. He can save us. Let us praise the Lord. God will provide.